Hi, this is Mark Wasserman. Welcome to the Skaboom Podcast. This is the audio companion to my forthcoming book, Skaboom, an American Ska and Reggae Oral History, that will be published in early 2021. On this episode, I tell the untold story of how a group of reggae-obsessed kids from the suburbs of New York paired up with a Jamaican expat saxophonist to create a short-lived but important ska and reggae scene at Max's Kansas City, the punk rival to CBGB's located less than a mile south on the Bowery. Originally opened in 1965, the first version of Max's closed in 1974, shortly after presenting a double bill of Bruce Springsteen with support from the Whalers, featuring Bob Marley and Peter Tosh during the summer of 1973. Here's rare audio of the band at Max's. The, the Whalers, minus Bunny, who wouldn't get on an airplane because he was frightened of them, uh, played at Max's for a couple of weeks, uh, double bill with Bruce Springsteen, who at that time was like a folk singer with an acoustic guitar sitting on a stool, no band. That's Peter Crowley. He's central to this story. Max's was quickly resurrected in 1975 under the ownership of Tommy Dean, who had the foresight to hire Crowley as the club's musical director. First incarnation at Max's, I was a customer for most of it. Although in the early 70s, when the Whalers played, I was not in New York. I was in California. Um, I took over um, um, Max's in 1975, late in 75. Uh, well, I began to, to, to be associated with Max's late in 75, and I took over completely in the winter of 76. Under Crowley's guidance, the club became one of the birthplaces of punk, regularly featuring bands including Suicide, the New York Dolls, Patti Smith Group, the Ramones, Television, Blondie, Talking Heads, the Cramps, the B-52s, and Klaus Nomi. After the breakup of the Sex Pistols, Sid Vicious played all of his U.S. solo gigs there. Crowley also had a passion for blues, R&B, reggae, and its earlier incarnation, ska. My interest pretty much in, in reggae and ska comes out of a movie called The Harder They Come. That's, that's what kicks us all off. Now, we had also heard the, uh, the big hit, The Israelites, by Desmond Decker. Uh, we'd heard My Boy Lollipop was a big hit by Millie Small, a crossover you know, into American pop music. But none of us realized that this was an entire genre. I mean, I knew those records sounded a lot like the, some of the New Orleans records that I already had in my collection. So, so it didn't dawn on me that there was such a thing as Jamaican uh, or reggae until that movie. And then that movie got us all interested in digging up more stuff. Inspired by the Jamaican sounds he was listening to, Crowley began searching out reggae bands and expat Jamaican musicians across New York City that he could book at Max's. There were quite a few 
um, Jamaican expatriate musicians living in New York, in, including Roland Alfonso. Uh, Jackie Mattoon lived in the, in the Bronx at that time. Uh, there was a band out of Queens, I think, called the Black Eagles. And, uh, yes, I searched out these bands as, as much as I could. There, there, uh, there weren't a lot available to me. At one point, Crowley's interest in the genre led him to book a regular Sunday reggae party at Max's beginning in early 1976. Well, you get, you get a, a few a sprinkling of black people, Jamaican people and or Americans. But mostly we got, um, you know, what, what you guess you would call a new wavy audience or whatever, you know. Uh, what we're talking about, the audience is a vanguard of very hip, uh, advanced, uh, mu- musical fans with very good taste. Keep in mind that in New York City at that time, within 10 miles of Max's Kansas City were 30 million people. And I was very happy if on a Sunday night, reggae night, I got 80 people. It was around 1978 that Crowley met the Terrorists, a band of reggae and ska-obsessed white kids. Founded in October 1977 by drummer David Dro Ostro, bassist Gary Buildings, and singer-guitarist Ray Deation, the band quickly became a reggae mainstay of the New York music scene of the late 70s and early 80s. Terrorists were the first uh, white reggae bands. They were, uh, some of the Jamaicans were very upset that I booked the terrorists. Particularly members, Jamaican members of bands that were um, not as good. (laughs) They got very upset because they didn't get the better bookings. And basically I booked on what I heard, you know, music. So there was some uh, jealousy there. They were from New Jersey. Uh, John Collins was not their singer in the beginning. Um, uh, um, the young man named Ray was the singer and guitar player. Um, they came to me. I, I, I'm pretty sure Dro, uh, David Ostrach, was the, was the individual who first came to me. Um, their principal songwriter, uh, lyrically was, uh, bass player. Uh, I think Gary was the instigator of the whole thing. And Drow was the resident genius and, uh, encyclopedic, uh, uh, expert on Jamaican ska, reggae, and and the Jamaican jazz that predates the ska and the reggae. Anyway, Drow knew all of that, going all the way back to Count Ozzy and everything else. Uh, Drow knew all 164 basic reggae drum beats, or drum patterns, I think the word he used. And then he knew new variations on them. Crowley initially booked the band at Max's on a Tuesday night to see how they would draw. Based on the response they generated, he quickly moved them to weekends after hearing them play. In a remarkable development, the band ended up backing Roland Alfonso, 
the legendary saxophonist of the Scatolites, had suffered a stroke in 1975 that left him unable to play for a time. During those years, Alfonso would often attend rehearsals of his son Noel's band. It was at one of those rehearsals in the spring of 1975 that Drow first met Alfonso, then living in musical exile in Brooklyn, selling nickel bags of weed out of a Jamaican patty shop in Flatbush to make ends meet. Drow searched for him and somehow found him in sitting in a wooden chair in a Jamaican patty store. Now, you have to picture these small stores in the, in, in the wilds of Brooklyn. You go in the store, the, the customer side and the and the uh, help side were divided by plexiglass walls, like a bank. And you slid your money in the little slot, and they slid the food back out to you in another slot. This was so they couldn't get robbed, even because they'd have this bulletproof uh, plexiglass walls. So Roland was allowed to sit on the customer side. So wooden wall and a wooden floor and the wooden chairs. It was a very funky store. And he was allowed to sit there and sell nickel bags, and that's what he did. <laughs> and nobody knew who he was. He was just this old man sitting there in the chair and trying to make a little bit of a living. Uh, so Dro found him there. I don't know how. Uh, I'm guessing Dro knew every every Jamaican musician in, in the New York area, so he, somebody... Obviously, hit him to where where Roland was. Could have been Jackie Matu. Who knows? Uh, and Roland talked talk him into. Uh, I mean, Drow talked talk Roland into uh, um, into playing again. Once Alfonso was ready, and they'd rehearsed together, Crowley booked a show in the spring of 1979, billed as Roland Alfonso with the Terrorists, which was well attended. The terrorists played their set and brought in Alfonso as the headliner. Um, and then I said, let's, let's make a record. Crowley, who had launched Max's Kansas City in-house record label, R.A.M., which issued the landmark punk compilation Max's Kansas City 1976, recognized the terrorists' talent and quickly suggested they record two 12-inch EPs, one with the band backing Alfonso and one featuring their own songs. The terrorists featuring it would be either Roland Alfonso and the terrorists, or the terrorists featuring Roland Alfonso. I forget which. The name of the EP because it was meant to be an extended play, twelve inch, uh, with however many songs there are, seven or eight songs. Um, that that was meant to be entitled Sax, S A X. Scandal, S-K-A-N-D-A-L. The band knocked out five of Alfonso's most well-known instrumentals, including Bridgeview, Musical Resurrection, and a reworking of the Scottalites' Christine Keeler, renamed Sax Scandal, and chosen as a title for the ill-fated collection. At that point, Tommy Dean was 
believing that Rollins was a star. And when Tommy Dean thought somebody was a star, he treated them like a star. So, you know, if you were in the dressing room, he'd send up champagne. And and, and we, had a, we had a limo service for me to go out to Brooklyn and get Roland and bring him into the studio. Or to bring him in, into the, the gigs. With, um, Tommy would supply the, the limousine. So I had a big boom box. And on the way home with Roland, we played the, the, the songs we had just recorded and mixed. Um, that's how I did sessions. I worked different from everybody in the thing. I would, I would, I would uh, go in the studio about six o'clock at night and come out at one in the morning with the, the finished record. Um, nobody does that, but but I do that. And so, so we're riding home with the. the I'm playing this tape on my big boombox in the backseat of the limousine, and Roland looked at me and he said, I never would have believed they could have done that. For the terrorists' recording, it was decided that John Collins, then fronting his own punk band, would sing lead. The story of the terrorists begins in 78. And I, uh, I went in the studio uh, real fast with them. I mean, I recognize them as a, a serious contenders of, of being a real band. Either John, John Collins and I were pretty close friends, so I bet it was John who said, "I have this song, uh, uh, Reese Park, and I want I want to record it." And I said, "Cool, we'll, you know, we'll go in the studio 28, and we'll uh, and we'll record it, and we'll do uh, another song or two while we're there." The band recorded Reese Park with its refrain of All the Naked People Down at Jacob Reese Park, which recounts efforts by local Queens, New York authorities in the 70s to prevent nudists from using the popular public beach. I had a new guitar player who was a real good, a pro, and uh, of course John Collins singing. So that's what we went in the studio with. The rest of their recordings were their own take on some of the golden era of 60s and 70s Jamaican ska, rock steady, and reggae, including Junior Biles' 1975 UK hit, Fade Away, Prince Buster's version of the Hopeton Lewis 1966 rock steady classic, Take It Easy. The band also arranged a catchy ska version of Roy Head and the Traits' 1965 blue-eyed soul hit, 
treat her right. We didn't have a, a horn section, so if you listened on, uh, I think it's on treat her right. Sounds like there's horns almost, but yes. that's the guitar taking the horns without a without a, a horn synthesizer attached to the guitar. It's just a guitar and an amp. That guy was he just was real good at. There's no uh, electronic gimmickry on any of that stuff. It's uh, it's just straightforward recording, you know, a little reverb and stuff, but that's it. And a spirited reggae cover of Lee Dorsey's 1966 hit, Working in a Coal Mine. Sadly, just as Crowley was preparing to ready the Alfonso and Terrorist EPs for release, his business partner informed him that the Max's R.A.M. label was falling apart. At that point, Tommy Dean, the, the, my, my, my partner in the, in the record company and the owner of Max's Kansas City, love, comes to my office and he says, I'm not going to put out the, the Roland Alfonso record because nobody knows who he is. I said to him, how did you come to that conclusion? And he said, I did market research. I asked my 19-year-old Jamaican maid if she knew who Roland Alfonso was. And she said no. Made it impossible for me to, to uh, be able to, to convince him otherwise. It was, you know... Uh, I, I was stunned, <laughs> and uh, and as a result, the, the, the terrorist uh, tracks didn't come out either. While the recordings were sadly shelved, the relationship that Dro had established with Roland Alfonso led him to being hired to serve as a Scottalites percussionist in the 90s when the band reformed and hit the road. The terrorists also had a short-lived partnership backing Lee Scratch Perry. Introducing myself. Yeah. 
Allah is great. Jaja is great. Rock up fate. All them jars the far right with your big brain con. All them jars the far right with your big line con. All them in the Though the two-tone ska scene then percolating in the UK would soon grab the musical limelight with its unique mix of 60s ska and punk, Crowley always held out hope that these tracks would get the respect they deserved. It's a labor of love. I have wanted this stuff out ever since the day I recorded it. And they finally have, in the Jungle Records release, Max's Scans a City, which features the tracks he helped produce. I was honored to be asked to write the liner notes for the Max's Scans a City compilation. The release offered Crowley some closure on the experience. I mean, that, uh, my whole purpose in all of this is, has been to get the music out there. Uh, that's why I currently live on Social Security. And then, uh, you know, it is, it's what it is. I, play. I looked out for everybody except me. Crowley's faith in a New York-inspired version of ska and reggae would soon be realized in the mid-'80s when the Toasters, the Boilers... The Scofflaws and many other bands featured in my book, Ska Boom, took the New York club scene by storm, creating a uniquely New York and later American version of Ska. But Crowley was definitely ahead of his time in the music he recorded. Our stuff was different from Two-Tone in that the terrorists, and the terrorists with Roland, were... Very Jamaican. I mean, the, the sound, the music sounds. It, it, whereas two tone was a was a, uh, a different sound, much more pop and more modern. I hope you've enjoyed this short audio documentary about the history of American ska and reggae. If you like what you've heard, please consider picking up a copy of Max's Kansas City compilation from Jungle Records, and do keep an eye out for my new book, Ska Boom. An American Ska and Reggae Oral History.